I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome, everybody, to this edition of the World Soccer Talk podcast. I'm your host, Richard Farley. Thank you very much for joining us. League Cup action on Sunday, handing out the first piece of silverware in the English season. Liverpool, Manchester City, it took more than 120 minutes to find out. Earlier on Sunday, one of the biggest matches on the calendar saw Arsenal visit Manchester United. Unfortunately for Arsenal fans, it was pretty typical Arsenal stuff. Leicester Spurs <laughs> staying at the top of the league with one goal wins. But let me bring in my co-hosts, Lawrence McKenna and Nipun Chopra, to talk about everything that happened. And let's start with the last match of the weekend. Lawrence at Wembley League Cup. 1-1 game, goes to penalty kicks, pretty much gave us the excitement that we would want in a cup final. Manchester City doing a much better job in the shootout, claims the first piece of silverware of the season. Tell me your general impressions of the match. I think there's a lot you can te- definitely take away for Liverpool and probably Man City as well going forward. Uh, overall, I thought it was a pretty good game, well contested. But in terms of um, the, the tackles and people sort of playing it in um, the, the way that you want a final to be played, I think. I, and actually, for some weird reason in London, this was a really big event. It was really hard to get tickets for it. Um, both sides seemed really hyped up. Like more than, then, more than previous seasons, it was d- difficult to get to this final? Like most seasons, to be honest, there's usually tickets sort of floating around at a reasonable price. But if you oh, wanted to get into this stadium, there's pretty unreasonable prices to get in. Um, and it, uh, you know, I think that's partly down to the sort of the way that Wembley have looked to build themselves up, and also the way the FA have looked to build this up. And I think also Carling, uh, Carling Capital One have looked to build this up too, just to make it an event again. Um, and to some extent, I think they got that out on the pitch. It's really nuanced uh, tactical decisions by both managers. And I'm really enjoying where Klopp's taking this team. Um, uh, you know, there's some interesting conclusions to, you know, what Liverpool fans took away from it as to whether they should keep Lucas, where they need to sell the likes of Lalana and Milner, uh, with, sorry, Moreno. Um, and just in terms of turning this squad around, which direction he's taking it in and, and therefore how, how it's shaped. And I really like it. Moreno probably doesn't need to be sold. I mean, if you just bring in a coach that'll tell him to face the people he's trying to tackle, I think everything will be okay. I, mean, the, I appreciate the behind-the-back tackle kind of bringing some Steph Curry flavor to the soccer field, but it obviously didn't sure. work. He got away with something a little bit there. Nipun, I want to get your general thoughts on the game. Both you and I, I believe, picked 2-1 results midweek, but we just had different mm-hmm. winners. You had Liverpool. I had I had Liverpool. You had Manchester City. Uh, in that way, we were both close enough to write that we can say yeah. we saw this game okay even though we were both wrong yeah it was definitely i agree with lawrence it was a good game to watch as a quote-unquote neutral i was at our local bar here and uh, it, it was packed full of liverpool supporters and a handful of city supporters and uh, the place erupted when liverpool uh, equalized there were 
chandeliers falling down and stuff like that. It, it was a very good experience, very good game. Um, as I was telling you guys before we started recording, I, th- I thought Liverpool were the better team overall for the entirety of the uh, extra time, whereas I thought City in general on the overall play, given the chances Sterling missed and what should have been a Stonewall PK, were a better team uh, for the 90 minutes. Hmm. Lawrence, I want to ask you about uh, Simone Mignolet's performance because it seems like even more than his usual performances, a mixed bag. Uh, the goal from Fernandinho, pretty sharp angle, got between his legs from a decent distance. I don't think, I don't think anybody. It, it didn't actually go between his legs. He sort he died on his side, yeah. Sort of okay. parry it. So it was still it was in the area his legs should have been, but it <laughs> uh, it, it it wasn't through his legs. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I think he's going to be disappointed with that. Yeah, um, thanks for correcting me. For on the that. rest of the game, I mean, credit to him that he didn't let it affect him. Uh, for the rest of the match, he pulled off some pretty incredible saves. Uh, it was a bizarre instant with Sacco early on. I mean, Sacco was yeah. very clearly groggy out on the pitch, and no one sort of thought, right, let's take the time. Just because he can, again, like I find it just so bizarre that football has no way of dealing with these kind of things, oh, and almost. You know, basically, the culture of the fact that the game needs to be moved on faster takes precedent over someone stumbling around, um, and it, it just—I find it so bizarre. He was literally the only reason he was outfooted uh, to even give Aguero that chance was because he had just hit himself in the head, hmm. and it's just bizarre. Like he basically, Liverpool should have been given the time to make a substitution. It's that simple. Yeah, Napoon, as a neuroscientist, what do you think yeah. about this? Whenever you see somebody clearly who is not even capable of carrying on normal life activities at that point, being asked to still participate in a professional athletic endeavor. First of all, I give a huge credit to to Liverpool, uh, to Klopp, and to Liverpool's medical staff for making that substitution because you could tell that he did not want to come off and he threw a hissy fit. But that decision should always be taken out of the hands of the player, and I applaud them for that. What I want to say, which ties into what Lawrence talked about, there should be, uh, and FIFA, FIFA Pro were trying to introduce this uh, legislation where they said, look, if, if uh, we understand that you want your player back on the field, but we need to be able to make these concussion decisions on the sideline. If you're giving yeah. us 30 seconds to make that decision, that is not long enough and you're putting these players in danger. So what, how do you deal with that? What FIFA Pro recommended was if a player is undergoing concussion analysis in the sense uh, if you're trying to diagnose whether uh, Sako has a concussion, for example, you are allowed to put a temporary substitute on mm-hmm. for the duration of uh, discussing whether that player is concussed. And I think that's a terrific, terrific way to make all parties happy. But mm-hmm. as always, FIFA vetoed it. I don't so. know, Nipun. I don't even believe in substitutions at all. I mean, three subs. <laughs> you know, when I was growing up, we had negative one sub. And the second half, you had to <laughs> sacrifice a player. That's that's how old school I am. So all these people mm-hmm. who are, think that concussions are a big deal, I don't know. I've had at least just three or, Just walk it off, baby. <laughs> yeah, I've had at least three or four different concussions today, which is probably why I'm exploring this line of reasoning for this issue. You open the fridge <laughs> differently. <laughs> um, it's it's just, I just find it very bizarre. I mean, you know, it's a very, it, it, it's not a very small part of the game because actually, no, you know, playing Torre, it's a, re, you know, this is a very unconventional back line. And for some weird reason, I think, uh, again, through the lens of a manager, uh, if that was Brendan Rodgers, I really feel like we would have and, um, mm. read things differently if he was fielding Lucas and Sacco. I think the narrative would have been, oh, it's shaky. He doesn't have any other options. Why did he choose Lucas over Torre? But for some reason, we trust Klopp with it. Um, and, you know, I think it was a good decision. I think Lucas has played actually terrifically at centre-back and has probably outplayed Sacco and Torre in that time. His positioning has been good. His, his reading of the game has been fantastic. And, you know, it's helped him 
um, to, to make more of a place for himself in the Liverpool uh, team. I mean, this is something uh, we're seeing in other teams across the world. Javier Mascherano, great partner for Gerard Piquet. We see David Alaba for uh, Bayern Munich playing in central defense. The idea that you can Alaba Al- 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 is different. Al- Al- Alaba is different, but, 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 and maybe but physically, at least, as far as his physical stature, he's not that much different. Absolutely. Um, yeah, no, I agree. Yeah, and that's it's kind um, of what we're talking about here because people have this conception of a central defender needs to be X, Y, and Z, and really you just need two people, well, three, two, one person to do a job, and there's no reason why Lucas, when paired with somebody that complements his skills, couldn't do that job back there. No, it's a very good point. Uh, it's still very interesting though to see the difference in the dynamic between Sacco and Lucas and uh, Lucas and Torre, mm-hmm. and it, I, I think it. It is very clear that Sacco is obviously there are certain players in this Liverpool team that I think Klopp appreciates more. Um, and Sacco is a very sort of unconventional looking defender. And for that reason, I think there's a couple of old school Liverpool fans that don't particularly appreciate him. But I do think he almost confuses the opposition sometimes uh, it, it, because the way he tackles is unusual. I really enjoy watching him and I think he's a great asset to the team. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's sort of the structure ahead of that, which I think maybe Klopp is is working with i you know it's still a fantastic uh front line to have Firmino, coutinho and Sturridge up there and they're interchanging i think uh, city really shut that down well today with essentially a block of four and then two wing backs yeah and to bring somebody with the talent and energy of adam lalana off the bench obviously he's been highly criticized when he was by liverpool fans when he's in the starting lineup but he's still a very talented and accomplished player to have in your game day squad i want to switch can i, can I ask you with, with, Mm. Well, with this, with this I think that's basically we, the, the point is that Liverpool have to assess, is it better to sell the player now and get the value for them and then move on to something that would look better in a Klopp shape? Or is it better to keep that player because you want them to work? And I think there's a difference between the two. I think it, it, you know, that's the hard part for a manager. It takes the vision to have to basically cut ties with the player and say, look, we need to move you on because you don't fit into the plans. And I think for a lot of people, they've, they've earmarked Lalana and Moreno as that. Mm. Uh, can I ask something? So when when now that we're dissecting the game, and obviously in retrospect, I'm thinking of the decision to bring on Lalana as one that might be or might be uh, is something that we should scrutinize maybe because with Lalana coming on, it's pretty much more of the same. You you already have those flair players on the pitch with Firmino, Sturridge, um, and and uh, Coutinho, of course. If you had brought on Benteke, I know he brought on Origi a little bit later, but if you brought on Benteke, maybe he would have given them a slightly different option. I guess that's the problem is, uh, I, d- I don't know if Klopp actually sees Benteke as another option. I mm. think he sees the way that he, he sometimes gets a bit confused and sometimes moves break down through him. I imagine what he wanted was for the moves just to be flow in the way that they uh, continued to flow. Maybe he wasn't looking for another option. He actually believed the system that Liverpool were playing would lead to something. Yeah, that's my reaction too. That if anything needed to change, it was Liverpool's performance when Manchester City had possession and had the ball and was going forward. Mm. But as far as uh, other places, I can see the justification for doing a like for like there. Um, but yeah, I think it's I think it's worth at least talking about and scrutinizing a little bit, right? Uh, something- I'm, re- I'm fascinated by Emre Chan. Uh, Emre Chan for me. You know, he has some real flash points in the game and does yeah. make some fantastic tackles. I think overall, though, how he tactically influences the play needs to evolve and needs to change. And some people are even questioning whether a, Mil- uh, a, a Milner-Chan-Henderson midfield shape works. Um, yeah, I don't know maybe, Liverpool, maybe Liverpool need, I know it sounds terrible, but maybe Liverpool need another captain. Uh, 
I think Chan, I, you know, I, I, I think Chan works much better that. when you have somebody that is just going to sit like Lucas in there, and you can start to take well, advantage wor- of more of his skill set. The worry is that because of the title that Henderson has been given, which is captain, he sort of is get he's a token place. I don't I don't believe that's true, but the perception is sometimes that he's sort of the token midfielder in there because he's the captain and because he sort of represents or is the closest to what Stephen Gerrard represented with the club. Uh, do we really think that Jurgen Klopp has allegiance to a captain he didn't name? I think Jurgen Klopp's a I, fair I man. I don't think that he. I don't think he. I don't think he does. But at the same time, I don't know if he knows uh, if he wants to disrupt that now. Mm. Gentlemen, let's talk about Manchester City in a second. But first, I want to talk to everybody about our new sponsor, SeatGeek. Have you ever been frustrated trying to buy tickets online? Most sites make it complicated and then try to sneak in huge fees when you check out. That's why you need to try SeatGeek. They've made it easier than ever to buy and sell sports and concert tickets. Uh, Just to give you an example, with the recent news that Arsenal is going to be coming to the country this summer, and we've got the Copa Centenario games happening starting in June, I've checked out SeatGeek to already see what tickets are going to be available for games in Santa Clara, in Seattle, even in Chicago. Months ahead of time, I can look at the SeatGeek app, see what the market is for these tickets, and start to make my plans for the summer. Well, SeatGeek is the only place I ever go to now for tickets or to a game or a concert, be it a soccer game or here in Portland, even a basketball game when I need to go see the Trailblazers. I've got the SeatGeek app on my phone, and I just used it the other day to go see the Blazers play the Brooklyn Nets. SeatGeek has taken all the work and all the hassle out of buying these tickets. It pulls, pulls all the information from all the available sites into one place so that you save time and you never miss a deal. You can even set alerts for upcoming events, and SeatGeek will let you know when the ticket prices fall. Even better, every, every ticket on SeatGeek comes with a grade based on its value so that you can immediately find underpriced seats. And before you buy, you can use SeatGeek's detailed maps to see the view from your seat inside the arena. Best of all, SeatGeek is always honest and always upfront about the price. Unlike Subhub, SeatGeek shows you the full ticket price from the start to the finish and never surprises you with huge fees at checkout. Listeners to this podcast, we have a special deal for you. $20 rebate off your first SeatGeek purchase. To get your $20 rebate on tickets, download the free SeatGeek app, go to the settings tab and click add a promo code, enter the promo code WSTPOD, SeatGeek will send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. Download the free SeatGeek app today and enter your promo code WSTPOD. I've just bought Beyonce tickets. You know what's amazing? I've clicked the Beyonce tickets, right? And there's like this little thing up in the corner. It says, awful deal, amazing deal. Really? It even rates. Yeah, I was literally, I needed Beyonce tickets. Please don't play this to my girlfriend. I needed Beyonce (laughs) tickets. And a few weeks ago, I went on a website and I could only find awful deals. I've literally just clicked on this site and it's shown me good deals in exactly the seats I was looking at for a hundred pounds less than I could buy them on the other site. This is genuinely... Can I have $20 off now, please? <laughs> you, absolutely, you absolutely can, and uh, enjoy your Thanks, Beyonce tickets. Eek. You sorted me out. Gentlemen, let's talk about the Manchester City side of the equation. I, I don't think anybody's going to be shocked that Manchester City won this trophy. They're obviously a very talented team. But if you take the broader view, this has been a bit of a turnaround week for Manchester City. Some questions coming into the week before they went to Ukraine had a very convincing performance against Dinimo and Kiev, and then turned around with that travel in the week and put forward a very good performance with pretty much the same squad, not resting very many players. Nipun, 
I think that Manchester City could use this as a bit of a confidence boost, provided that all these players don't drop dead at some point in the next two weeks. Yeah, yeah, the injury thing is always an issue with them, right? Especially Aguero's hamstrings uh, are something that I think need to be considered when you are cognizant of the fact that Bonnie is still struggling. Ihenaccio has done well. I was surprised he wasn't involved today. But yeah, a huge, huge week for them. Uh, You and I talked midweek or maybe last week about how... um, Pellegrini was very unfairly derided for his decision to rotate in that Chelsea game. And ever since, it's proved to be a masterstroke. They, they won midweek. They won today uh, on penalties. And on they go. Hmm. So, so, Lawrence, do you think this should change how some people are viewing Pellegrini? This is, after all, another trophy that he's won with Manchester City. How do some people view him? I think some people maybe are looking at Manchester City falling away from this title race and starting to take a little bit more of a negative opinion about what he brings to the team. I mean, I was going to say this uh, about the overall final. I, as, as well contested as I think it was, the amount of money that both sides have spent and the investment and squads they put together, I still think should be performing better than that, and especially Man City. I mean, you know, you look at that team, they've got Aguero up front, they've got uh, Sterling just behind. I'm always significantly underwhelmed by how much investment uh, does to any of these teams. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I think he's had more than enough time to be able to do that. And I think uh, for that reason, I do think there should be questions asked over whether Pellegrini's uh, done well enough. But at the same time, I think Man City are also somewhat, they shoot themselves in the foot because they cultivate their own strange mentality. I think they're very much in a sort of between two worlds mentality. You know, they see themselves as this massive club, but then that's contrasted by the past. They see themselves as a very progressive team that's contrasted by the fact their owners uh, come from an area which is building all its money on something which is heavily rooted in the past. And all these kind of unusual disjunctions, I think Manuel Pellegrini and any manager that's there, possibly bar Pep Guardiola, have to compete with those sort of forces because they're considered to be part of that as opposed to above that. I think that's why people are expecting there to be a big difference. I think definitely that anti-sort of environment that the idea of even of Pep Guardiola at City has provided people with a different kind of analysis of uh, Pellegrini. And that's the overall, there still should be more progress there in that time. What are your thoughts, Napoon? I always have a little bit of trouble whenever we get too mm-hmm. focused on money because looking at money isolated to one team or one squad ignores the fact that other teams are spending money too. And sometimes teams have invested badly as well. Right. Well, (laughs) and when you're going up against a team that also has a lot of talent, that doesn't always produce the most aesthetically pleasing game. Uh, I I guess I get a little bit um, concerned about reading too much into these things kind of in a vacuum. I think the thing, the problem we run into often when we're doing this analysis is that we're looking at it from a very, at a level very close to the ground. Whereas when we rate other teams or historical teams that were excellent, we tend to do that in forgetting these the moments where they struggled. Whereas all the teams uh, that we've ever really looked at had moments where they struggled. Um, so when we're talking analyzing the city team and analyzing what arguably is overspending uh, and analyzing what might not be the uh, almost a Barcelona esque football that we hope they might play, I think the problem is that we're trying to analyze them mid-season and if we were to, uh, uh, if I were to ask Lawrence the same question maybe two or three years from now he'd probably remember the moments that City produced at the start of the season and might skip over some of the moments that City have struggled in uh, mid-season 
I'm not saying they're such a. T- I'm not saying they're a terrible side. I think within context, he as a manager is probably achieving things. But I think mm-hmm. in the overall project, I think it's it's poor. But what, so what, would, you, what necessarily... would you what would you like to see, Lawrence? What would you like to see? Would you like to see them win more games? Would you like to see them bring through more youth? What do you think they're failing at? I guess. Well, I mean, arguably, arguably they are bringing through youth now. They got right. absolutely thrashed exactly. by Chelsea, but I mean, you know, they've still got Inacho coming through. But then a lot of people come to the conclusion that Inacho would have come through in any side because yeah. you know. And I mean, he's not truly their their youth product anyway. But so what? What is no, it exactly. about City that bothers you? I guess. Well, what 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 bothers me about City is. Uh, I mean, I think you could put this to any owner, but, you know, the ownership and the way that they, um, there are no questions significantly about uh, any royal ownership of any club. Mm. Um, the the fact that they've spent a, a lot of money in the time they've been there and that yeah, has definitely disrupted things in some way. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm appreciative of the, the, um, the, the academy and all those kind of things and all the reach out, but you almost get down to the old Chris Rock side, which is you're supposed to. Like that's often what I come down to with football teams is like, well, they're doing this and they're doing that. And I know it's all within context, but you do sort of come back to, you're supposed to do that. Like that's how it's supposed to work. Um, and I guess I'm just, it just leaves me to be significantly underwhelmed by a lot of what these huge institutions are doing both on and off the field. But just because city has the talent to win leagues and cups doesn't mean we shouldn't still celebrate them when they do win leagues and cups. But I guess what I'm, what, what I'm saying is it, uh, for me, it's not so much about, measuring whether they win or lose you know I, I in many ways you know some of the the most interesting parts of football are watching your team lose and you know that as an experience i think a lot of people are sort of focused on the fact that this squad or this team has to win and i'm not even saying that I, it's that i want to see I know, I know that obviously it's a positive thing for them to see city win but you know is that by any cost is that by any system because I think a lot of people are experiencing that, you know, if, if you get if they have Mourinho in like at Chelsea or questioning whether if they bring Conte in. But that's why it seems to be that's why Pellegrini is one of those unusual fits, because it's sort of like, right, he is actually going to bring some entertaining football. He is going to bring something that is going to at least bring the PR and the perception of Man City to be something positive because Barcelona did the same. But we also forget how for a very long time in Spain uh, and you know, in, in a number of other places, and I think online as well, Kartik experienced the same. He had to speak to so many people about Barcelona fans and people who watch Barcelona saying, you're not playing good football just because you're not playing our brand. Do you, do you guys and, think that maybe with City, something that's going on is that they've, they're a little bit underwhelming or unremarkable in their personnel? They, they don't have a Mourinho or, or LVG falling on the sidelines. Like today's Pellegrini's comment after the game when he was asked about why he picked Caballero and he said, my word is more important than football. Now, now as a purist, I love that, but I can see that sort of thing annoying, not annoying, but feeding the narrative that he's kind of boring and doesn't have much of a personality. And I wonder why, I, I wonder if that's what feeds into a somewhat blasé narrative about uh, City. Not so much for me. I, I don't really experience, like, I like him i like all the stories i yeah, hear about I, him I and, you know a lot of south american players or players that have been under him speak about his great relationship with them and how he was not brutally honest but sort of very barefaced with a lot of people and made it very clear why he was selecting people i think diego forlan is quoted in quite a few different places as sort of saying uh about his experience with him and yeah, yeah so i don't think it's so much that i do also think it's partly the way the players you know i don't feel particularly inspired by Raheem Sterling. I, you know, he's a good player, but I don't feel particularly inspired. 
Same right. for David Silva. Same for Aguero, even. The same for Yaya Toure. The same for Fernandinho and this, Fernando. This sounds crazy. I don't I mean, even you're, feel you're, all that. You're mentioning some of the best talents in England, and you're saying you're not inspired by them, which that, of course, is your prerogative. But the first thing that I think of is if you're not inspired by those talents, I completely get why you find Manchester City boring, because it sounds like maybe you find a lot of things boring. Shots fired. I mean, just, um, yeah, but but that'd be my point is that it's why maybe uh, you know I mean obviously there's a lot of intangibles in football that we end up discussing in the end but I uh, there is this sort of I guess it's this kind of faceless corporatism that's brought these guys together which is why mm. I find a little less the, exciting. the mercenary thing but but I feel like but most no, because, teams no, in the Premier League as players as, as players I actually quite I like them, like I like them as people and characters mm. but I, I you know and I I can appreciate that. But at the same time, there's a there's something that is taken away from the overall side of that. So, so as individuals, and I, I can appreciate that. So at some point, somebody or some team's identity becomes so entangled with the money that supports them that you personally can't dissociate the two. Like Now these players are not only good players, but they're players that are part of this this club that is spending so much money and they're reaping so many benefits off of it. And you you you're unwilling to disentangle those two things. It's not that I'm unwilling. I mean, you know, I, I appreciate what Aguero has done in, in terms of those things. But then if I, if you take, so if you put it in that context, I can appreciate what Aguero has done. But in another context, I find it, it's difficult to take away from the fact that they do need to be competing every season and they should be competing on all fronts. Do you feel the same way about Liverpool? Yeah. I actually, I mean, there's something that I find very difficult to discuss about Liverpool. I think the corporate structure at Liverpool for years has been a real problem. And I think if you, uh, you know, it, it's making it difficult. The, one of the few reasons I'm sticking with Liverpool right now is because, of, you know, the, the ties that I've had since I was young. But the problem would be that those are being eroded by the fact that in more recent years, we've come over discussions where Liverpool froze the people out who lived around Anfield. They refused to pay good prices for their houses. This was before the Americans came in, either set of them. Mm-hmm. And they froze those people out of their homes. Don't tell David Conn that. And they took away. David Conn knows about it and has written about it. And you can go to Liverpool and get a tour of these places. But it seems like people want to ignore that side of things because it doesn't fit in with their narrative. Hmm. I, I can appreciate one thing and disentangle it from the other. I can appreciate what Rafa Benitez achieved at Liverpool in that time. But at the same time, I find it difficult to really care about a team when I find out the overall institution is taking away from other you know when you see the wider picture essentially no and you're certainly not the only person it makes it difficult to support the mavs yeah no, no one likes s- the mavs why cuban <laughs> i don't know about that <laughs> the mavs the mavs are more popular than ever right now um but yeah, yeah a lot of people well, feel the yeah. same way about about you know bayern munich there's a reason why a lot of people in germany view that as a corporate institution and a lot of people in various leagues around the world are not going to get behind these clubs that are spending so much money because uh it on some level disagrees with their vision of what they would want their club or football in general to be gentlemen we've talked about this game for a long enough let's go ahead and take our first break right now when we come back we'll focus on the other premier league match of the weekend the premier match of the weekend in the premier league uh, manchester united upsetting arsenal at old trafford stay with us this is the world soccer talk podcast so just to clarify this is a premier league match that is also mm-hmm. premiere. I stumbled upon that in the last <laughs> segment. But now that we've gotten those semantics out of the way, let's actually talk about the result. Uh, 
the surprise result of the weekend, maybe not that Manchester United won this game 3-2 over Arsenal, but based on who Manchester United play in Impoon and the hype around Arsenal throughout the year, this being their year to win the title. If anything says typical Arsenal, same Arsenal as ever, it is losing 3-2 at Old Trafford to a team that played so many of their youth players. Yeah, I have to say that that's correct. Uh, before the game started... I was uh, when I, when I saw United starting lineup, seeing Carrick and Blint as uh, defend uh, in defense, central defense. We had De Gea back. It was basically unchanged with and then De Gea uh, playing um, uh, in goalkeeper instead of Romero, and then uh, Rojo coming in instead of Riley. Mm-hmm. And I thought to myself that there's no way that Arsenal does not beat this Manchester United team. In fact, I kept thinking to myself that this game has a lot of echoing moments of of uh, when United beat Arsenal 8-2. At that time, Arsenal had gone through their own issues with huge injuries. They had Jenkinson playing, uh, Gnabry playing, and they they had a bunch of players who had been injured, and United just smashed them that day. And that's seriously how I thought this game would play out. And uh, yeah, I guess my whole argument that Arsenal is a changed unit uh, this season is falling apart, and I think Karthik's is too, because this is a game that Arsenal really should have won. Mm. Uh, Lawrence, I want to get your thoughts on it, but first, uh, regarding that youth comment, Manchester United had nine academy products in their team today. Six of them actually saw action, and of course, the one that people are going to remember most is Marcus Rashford scoring two goals and assisting on what was eventually the game winner in the 65th minute for Ander Herrera. Uh, Manchester United was up 3-1 at that time. Metsud also quickly Pulled Arsenal within one. United held on for the win. Lawrence, what Nimpoon said, the idea that so many of us, and I think us is fair because we've all entertained this argument at various points this year, thought that Arsenal was a changed team. And maybe they are. Maybe this is just a one game and we shouldn't read too much into it. But since the turn of the calendar, Arsenal has not really looked like a title-winning side. And for those people that were still holding on to that notion, Sunday's result might be a huge wake-up call. Arsenal's team don't apparently historically score a lot of goals at Old Trafford. I think the last time they did score two was actually in that eight-two thrashing. Um, and you, you know, I mean, you know, argue that's just uh, as much of a together side. But part of that, I think, is the analysis of what Wenger's actually trying to do there. Because post game, he said, you know, uh, one thing we didn't know too much about was Rashford's movement, um, which is pretty incredible, really, because you know uh, he's pretty obviously Wenger very famous for not doing too much research on the opposition. But at the same time, you'd sort of think, well, if you're that confident then in your system, then your system should be able to deal with that kind of movement. Mm-hmm. It seems very clear that they couldn't deal with his movement inside the box. Um, United knew that. And it wasn't as if Raf- Rashford scored like incredible goals. Right. You know, I, I sort of feel like, you know, whilst they were good, I still feel like it's his movement that Arsenal really struggled with. And their system didn't manage to hold up against that. And that's what I find so incredible. Mm-hmm. Marcus Rashford, 18-year-old academy product. Nobody uh, outside of probably hardcore Manchester United fans had heard much about him. Nipun, can you tell me anything about this guy? And if you can't tell me anything, sure. at least tell me what you saw on Sunday because uh, you come out, make your debut, score two goals and assist on another against one of your team's rivals. That's about as good a debut as any professional could hope for. 
Absolutely. So Rashford has been at the club since he was eight years old. He, he So 10 years ago, essentially, uh, he, he started training with United, signed his professional contract in 2014. City actually almost signed him and then passed on him, saying that he was too small. Uh, he too scored of... Yeah. And scored, yeah, then signed Raheem Sterling a few years ago. Yeah, legend Raheem Sterling. Uh, he also scored in the UEFA Youth League earlier this year, um, games against Wolfsburg and PSV. Now, I have to point out that this was his uh, Premier League's uh, debut, but he did score two goals against Michelin midweek. So he's essentially now scored four goals in two games and has an assist in four days. And not only that, but he scored with his first shot in the Premier League. Yep, that's also accurate. So he's now the youngest player in uh, Manchester United history to have scored in European competition, Mm. uh, beating, guess who, George Best. So that's pretty elegant. Uh, company to be in so for me I'm it was you know just incredible to watch this kid play I think what Lawrence said has a lot of importance to notice that these weren't the kinds of goals that we saw so so let's go back a few years against Aston Villa um, um, Federico Makeda scored what was an incredible goal on the turn Welbeck's first goal against Sunderland, a 5-0 mauling. Incredible goal from 40 yards out. All four goals for Rashford were inside the box and were goals that you want to see a, the kinds of run strikers make. Uh, and that was encouraging to see because, you know, we as a United supporter, I was pretty freaked out by the fact that Martial pulled off injured in the Michelin game. Mm. Before mm. the Michelin Almost game. Almost Hernandez. Uh, yeah, he's the Mancunian Chicharito. And, Chicharito. And, and but and I mean, there's there are shades from the distance that he scored his first goal of a sort of Ruben Nistelrooy-esque kind mm. of uh, distance. I, I don't want to put him in that same box. I don't think he's anything yeah. near kind of player. But I I do think sometimes in recent years United have really lacked that side to a player when they've not had a Hernandez on. And what's great is also that he is he was so prominent in both those games. So it's not as if he sort of just popped up and was suddenly, you know, oh he you know there's a moment and he's done it. But he was he was very prominent uh, in the side. And I like Throughout that. I think. That's, yeah. It's, there's something so likable about him, you know, the youthful exuberance and everything else is is fantastic. Hmm. Let's talk about the managers here, gentlemen. Louis Van Hall under more scrutiny these last couple of weeks. The Mourinho reports kicking up. Lawrence, this is a huge result. This is a result that nobody really saw coming. It gets them within three points of the top four. Maybe rekindle some hopes. Manchester United can return to Champions League next year. Of course, it's against a big rival. Does this? More than buy time for Louis van Gaal, does this give us reason to really reconsider uh, what he's doing, particularly given how many young players were in this team today? Um, I, well, I mean, you could take that that way, or you could also say maybe he's bringing all these young players in because he knows that he doesn't have much time left and wants to leave somewhat of a legacy. I mean, you know, either way, you can write a narrative. Um, for me, I think, for not only for me, but for a lot of people surrounding the club, Mourinho feels somewhat inevitable. Um, you could take that as negatively or as positively as you want. Um and I think for that reason, it's probably uh, a, a good time for United to be doing this. You know, whether they're in the Champions League or not, if you've got Mourinho there, you've got uh, a pull towards the team. And I imagine, you know, not only Mourinho, but just with Van Gaal leaving uh, and this sense of a new dawn, it's going to bring in um, a certain kind of player and bring a certain kind of air. I guess what's worrying, if it does feel like Mourinho is inevitable, is all this youth that... Uh, that is coming through to Van Gaal. <laughs> All going to be no loaned chance. out next year. Yeah, but either that or, you know, they're going to really need to embed themselves within this team before Mourinho arrives. Mm-hmm. Um, 
uh, either that or actually maybe United I think United maybe and Van Gaal might be hoping if he knows the Mourinho is coming in maybe hoping that actually some of these players are going to prove themselves to have those qualities that Mourinho might look for mm-hmm. in permanent team members and Nipun, uh, I want to ask you about still. Nipun, I want to ask you about Wenger um, I know you're one of your areas of expertise is Manchester United but I want to ask you about Arsene Wenger at some point, it seems like managers have to be able to meet bottom lines. And I, the undercurrent with that was apparent in the Van Hall conversation talking about the need to finish top four. That's kind of a bottom line for him. Arsene Wenger at some point needs to be judged against bottom lines, doesn't he? It seems like for the last eight or ten years, he's had these somewhat ethereal marks because uh, Arsenal didn't have the money to com- to buy and right. compete with other people. Well, now that's over. They're actually able to spend big. Now they should be able to exp- compete for titles. Well, now the league doesn't have the same Chelsea and United forces at the top of the league, and Arsenal, again, fe- appears to be falling back. This is just a game where, bottom line, you have to find a way to win it if you are going to compete for a title. We've talked about Manchester United facing the other title contenders uh, from here between here and May, so this could be points dropped within that 14 league at this point. At some point, don't we have to be harsher about Arsene Wenger? Absolutely, we should. And uh, I, I think Wenger is the best manager in the Premier League. But he deserves a lot of criticism for this loss today, especially given the fact that I, as we've talked about before, this is Arsenal's best chance in since the Invincibles era to win the Premier League. Uh, the teams around them have fallen apart. Chelsea's fallen apart. Leicester and Spurs are ahead of them. City isn't playing as well uh, as they should be. They are on the back of a couple of cup wins themselves, so it's not like they don't have any winning. Uh, winningest players on their team so all the what do you mean winningest yeah sorry yeah what i meant to say players that haven't won anything in the league that was one of the that was one of the things that annoyed uh, a lot of arsenal supporters was that arsenal was signing players that hadn't won much before so now they have players that have won from all over the world from barcelona and real madrid and they themselves have won fa cup so they're in that sense i think arsenal should have won this game. And what I think will happen probably is that they will end up losing the league uh, by a couple of points or maybe one or two, maybe three points. And they will look back to this game against this, what was a tattered, dilapidated Manchester United team uh, completely falling apart at the edges. And the fact that they dropped points in this game, all three points, is probably what lost them the, lost them the league this season. Hmm. Perhaps the only silver lining for Arsenal is now that they're back in the pole position for the Arsenal Wenger Trophy, looking more and more likely to be <laughs> fourth of four in that four-team league. Uh, the other scores from this weekend, let's run through them very quickly. Uh, we're going to talk about these games in the next two segments. The weekend in the Premier League's team, Premier League started on Saturday. West Ham 1-0 victory at home against Sam Allardyce and Sunderland. Sunderland stays in the bottom three. Leicester got a very late goal from Leonardo Ulloa to get a 1-0 victory at home over Norwich they stay top of the league Chelsea with two late goals against that stubborn Southampton defense gets a very good victory at St. Mary Stoke 2-1 victory at home at the Britannia against Aston Villa Watford and Bournemouth play out a nil-nil while one of the more exciting matches of the weekend was the match that Nipun 
Brandon and I said was going to be the worst of the weekend. West Bromish <laughs> Albion scores three goals against Crystal Palace. Sunday's games, we've already talked to you about Manchester United 3-2 victory over Arsenal. Spurs, the overshadowed game of the weekend, 2-1 victory over Swansea to stay within two points of Leicester. Right behind Spurs at the top of the table, Arsenal 51 points, and then Manchester City on 47, though they now have a match in hand. At the bottom of the table, Norwich sits in 17th place with 24 points, the same number of points as Newcastle, who were off this weekend. Newcastle sits 18th, followed by Sunderland and Aston Villa. Going to go ahead and take our second break right now. When we come back, we're going to get players of the week, talk about the rest of the matches in the Premier League. Stay with us. This is the World Soccer Talk Podcast. Welcome back, everybody. World Soccer Talk Podcast, our third segment of the show where we are going to start to get to the other games in the Premier League, eight-match schedule. We've only talked about one of those so far. Before we get to those other seven matches, we're going to do our Players of the Week. I am going to go first, and, you know, mm-hmm. this is controversial, but I'm going to go ahead and take that Rashford kid from Manchester United. Uh, <laughs> Marky Rashford, Marcuson Rashford, I don't even remember Marky his name. Uh, but two goals, one assist on his Premier League debut. I only wish I would have actually paid attention to Europa League this week, so I would have seen his de- actual debut. But as you guys know, I don't pay attention to Europa League. <laughs> but he does get my Player of the Week honors. Napoon, let's go to you next. Um, it would have been Rashford, but since you've taken him, I'm going to go with Berahino. Berahino coming back into the I West Brown. Okay, I'll have another one then if you want. But, no, no, it's uh, fine. You can have that one. Okay. Don't listen uh, to Berahino him. Berahino <laughs> was, uh, was very good in this West Brom game. Uh, out of the wilderness, back into form. And the best moment of the, the entire week, even though it wasn't a goal, was him cutting onto his right foot and shooting uh, a curve shot that went almost top 90, but actually hit the post it was just beautiful just if you haven't watched it just watch him do that and you you'll wonder why uh why uh, pulis didn't bite his own uh, tongue and let him play earlier this season <laughs> yeah pulis doesn't really seem like a guy that's gonna let that go easily but thankfully yeah. he finally has now that we're well past the winter window lawrence your turn uh, i'm gonna go very easily with uh marco arnautovic hmm. uh, i think the more that he plays for this team the more people uh, seem to enjoy watching him play. Uh, I call him a rip-off Zlatan Ibrahimovic not long ago. <laughs> and he does sort of boss people around in that way. Uh, just get a different hairstyle. He does sort of boss people around in that way. I don't um, think he even minds that comparison. I think he would like to be the the kind of the dollar store Ibra. Probably so. <laughs> the but, dollar but, I mean, store Ibra. I mean, there's a hashtag at least, but I, I still feel like uh, you know he's got a long way to go in this Stoke side. Uh, what I'm going to be interested in is what what Stoke do in the summer to add, first of all, add to this team, which I imagine will be in terms of defence. You know, upgrade the likes of Cameron, maybe Bardsley, mm-hmm. um, and and then I'll be even more interested to see whether they manage to keep hold of some of these uh, players. Also, someone who definitely deserves a mention just. Uh, because of his uh, record was Fraser Forster obviously let in a goal that would be very disappointed with over the weekend but uh, before that he set a new club record for uh, minutes on the pitch without conceding a goal which was into the uh, well into the hundreds above what they'd done before so Mm. very impressive very impressive unfortunately Southampton's run kind of stopped and as you guys probably know I've been very high on the Saints potential to actually challenge for the top four I had to reset that a little bit I'll, I'll take a rethink once I have some time to watch that game but uh losing at home to Chelsea the way that they lost to uh something to reconsider the rest of the matches of the weekend Nipun let's go ahead and start with you what other yep. match drew your attention 
the big one definitely was the West Brom Crystal Palace game. Uh, as I mentioned, Barahino started, and this was interesting to me. I like we, how you describe it as the, the big one. <laughs> West Brom hosting Crystal Palace is the big yeah. one. Yeah, it's, it's, only, it's, it's only a small one if you're narrow-minded. <laughs> yeah, well, we, guilty, we were extremely, guilty. extremely narrow-minded in the preview. We both thought that this would be a snooze fest. And we were both laughing at the fact that this had been picked by NBC. And man, did NBC get this right. So uh, maybe it's the NBC effect. Uh, interesting to me was that they played with a 4-3-3. We've largely derided the 4-5-1 they've played. You're talking uh, about West Brom? It, yes, with okay. West Brom. And uh, they played uh, with Barahino and Sessegnon supporting uh, Rondon as the sole striker. Palace really struggled with that. Uh, they were found, they were carved open more uh, very, very often. Um, I, I thought that that the, the Barahino, the third goal, I don't know if you guys got a chance to watch it, but was just incredible direct counterattacking football. Olsen to Rondon, uh, straight one-touch pass to Sessegnon, and then Sessegnon with an incredible pass to Berahino, left foot volley into the goal. Just exceptional goal. Uh, Berahino hit the post. Wickham's goal was very good also for Crystal Palace. So this was a very entertaining game. Uh, West Brom deservedly won, though. Hmm. Lawrence- Wick- Wickham's strike, uh, to, to sort of put it into the far corner, is quite really incredible, yeah. it was, it was a, wasn't it? It wasn't direct to him. But I think right. he got, it crossed in and sort of knocked on, and he strikes it across goal. It's a lovely, clean strike from him. I think he, didn't he score two in this? He scored he the did, first. Yeah. yeah, he scored the first as well. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I took his uh, goal total on the season from one to three. So uh, <laughs> prolific. <laughs> he tripled his goal tally. Prolific. All Still of a wor- worrying, worrying for Crystal Palace again. Um, yeah. Look into your crystal ball. Yeah. Tell me what the future of Alan Pardew is, Lawrence. Um, probably crystals. Crystal meth. Probably crystal meth. I, no, I mean the club, not, uh, not, not uh, you know, sort of crystal meth or anything like that, yeah. Mm. yeah. <laughs> well, Crystal Pal- Palace is just in a free fall. They're in 14th place at this point. They have 32 points, which on one hand is eight points above the drop. On the other hand, it's only 32 points, so you can't be really comfortable with that. I think the most concerning point apart about that, Lawrence, is the fact that there are now only three teams between them and the drop. They've been the worst team in the Premier League for a couple of months now, and it's not going to take that much for Bournemouth and Swansea and maybe one of Norwich or Newcastle to pass them. Should yeah, they, I guess the, should they be really realistically worried about relegation? Well, the worrying side for them is they still have to play Sunderland in the next uh, game. Then they play Liverpool. I don't know whether that's going to be such a big challenge, but then they play uh, <laughs> in the Premier League at least uh, Leicester, West Ham, Norwich, Arsenal. And then Everton, obviously, there's not such a big worry. But there's quite a few teams in there that are basically looking for points for a reason. You could just make up club names at this point, and I would say that they would be favorites to beat Crystal Palace. I mean, we have no proof. It's not even favorites to beat them. Just, I mean, not not only motivation, but also just, you know, the. it's basically that I think they were looking to build on what they did, mm-hmm. and they haven't built on what they did. Um, you know, they've had some good performances, but I didn't, fine, you're not finishing any higher this season. Um it, you know, again, it comes down to the Alan Pardew effect and the long-term effects of Alan Pardew. Uh, gentlemen, let's talk about another team that is challenging that worse than the Premier League label. They're tied with Crystal Palace in the form table at the bottom of the league with only one point through six matches, and, and that's Norwich. But whereas Crystal Palace had a very disappointing result in performance this weekend, Norwich almost got a point yeah. at league-leading Leicester. Uh, your thoughts, Nipuna? Is this a positive for Norwich, or are they at the bottom-line state where they either get results or nothing? Cameron Jerome should have scored from that header. I, I don't understand how he missed that. It just defies physics. <laughs> the, the angle of the ball, 
just it I still don't understand how it went in, how it didn't go in. So I'm I think he'll be very disappointed by that. Um Teddy was good on defense, so that was that was a positive. Uh Norwich were actually better for for a lot of the game is I think what you were hinting at. But it came down to one piece of quality, and that quality came from what was an incredible pass from Albrighton. Albrighton from on set pieces had been magnificent all evening, uh, and it was rather appropriate that Ochoa's uh, goal came from a ridiculously awesome cross across uh, the six-yard box. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Another kind of top versus bottom matchup this weekend saw Tottenham hosting Swansea. Swansea, 16th place. I think a lot of us, well, at least me, I'm just going to call me us for the sake of this. It sounds better that way. Right. Uh, a lot of us think Swansea has been playing better, but they're only three points above the drop. They now haven't won in four. Uh, contrast that with Tottenham. They're top of the form table in the Premier League. 18 points from their last six games and a 2-1 win, Lawrence, over Swansea. Uh, I think at this point, perhaps remarkably, we've moved on from even questioning whether Spurs are a true title contender. I think now the questions are more about what are Spurs' ceiling? What is Spurs' ceiling? Well, I think Spurs' ceiling was being disrupted at times uh, by uh, essentially a front three, probably four, if you include Key sort of joining in there in a very unusual formation uh, against them, basically. It was somewhat of a, like a 4-3-3, but it played out more like a 4-3-1-2. And I think uh, Spurs struggled to cope with that at times. And then basically they ma- they managed to reorganize because Pochettino uh, got them back in at halftime and basically said, right, this is what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, I, I, I still think that, you know, when it, when it came down to uh, judging whether Spurs are still in the title race and the reasoning being, you know, they managed to come back from 1-0 down, I don't even know if that's how I want to measure them anymore. It's, it's yeah. more about w- the way that the team's playing and how well they're playing together they put that they put together some very good moves in the sort of 70 to 80 minute mark when they scored their goals and uh you know i, th- I think that's way more important is they're working out how basically how to play in the premier league and mm-hmm. i think that that's really important for this team especially considering it was danny rose N- and nasa chadley and how important uh you know whilst we've been speaking about the central column for spurs being good which is Delhi alley uh, just in front of the two uh, central midfielders of very often Eric Dyer um, and Dembele. who else do they play when they're not when Dembele, sorry, um, and then that sort of alongside Ericsson. Today we saw a lot of whip from them, and ultimately I think that's how they manage to outplay Swansea. So it's also the adaptability from them, and that was quite impressive. Yeah, adaptability seems such a great word. Between the goal scorers today, the timing of it, the quick turnaround from Champions League, uh, we really saw the depth of not only personnel, but uh, options of tactics really tested. And although 2-1 at home against one of the four or five worst teams in the league probably isn't superficially impressive, maybe given the circumstances and maybe the what we're still waiting to be proven for Tottenham, that they have the staying power, that they have the versatility, that they have the diversity to come up with these different types of victories. Uh, maybe that is what's most important. Like you're saying, they well, have the league's obviously, best. Obviously, Richard. Go ahead. I mean, sorry, sorry to interrupt you, but we are, they're also coming off the back of a three nil thrashing of Fiorentina. Right. In obviously granted in a league, you don't watch, but still, you know, three 0 thrashing of Fiorentina is very impressive. Yeah, they now by five goals have the best defense in the league. They're tied for the best attack in the league. Uh, they're just very few indicators that Spurs 
aren't going to stick around. If anything, they might be slight title favorites. They're only two points behind Leicester. Uh, Gentlemen, let's talk about one more game before we take our break and then come back to, um, come, come back to the rest of the games. Let's talk about Stoke versus Aston Villa. We talked uh, about a a little bit when Lawrence named Marko Anatovic his player of the week. Uh, Nipun, I want to get your thoughts on this one because we talked about how Stoke kind of had to come out of their shell a bit in order to play a team that was going to give up the ball and has inferior talent to them. It seems like, although it took them a while, they were eventually able to do that. Yeah, the the Westwood West Westwood sorry moment was a clear PK. Just a stupid tackle on Bardsley. Arnautovic mm. uh, scored the the uh, a good PK and Shakiri. Now here's a player that we've talked about this before. That Arnautovic is probably their most effective player. But I think Stoke play best when Shakiri gets on the ball and when he has time on the ball. And for a majority of the game, Villa actually did a good job of keeping Shakiri quiet. Uh, a couple of times he got away from the, the holding midfielders, and one of those times he sent an incredible cross, a uh, very good cross to Arnautovic for what was a scrappy finish for the second. But I think that was the difference, again, was, was the fact that uh, Shakiri got on the ball um, uh, on, on that one occasion. Stoke also tweeted something funny during the game, didn't they? I can't remember what the line was, but it was something about, uh, basically, it was banter, Richard, about Jolly and Lescott. <laughs> and then the, the preceding tweet, oh, uh, sorry, this uh, preceding, succeeding tweet was, and the one after was mm. the tweet which um, uh, basically says, sorry, that was tweeted from our pocket. <laughs> so, uh, very, very well, funny. Although mm. when you should be making fun of, uh, basically making fun of people who suffer because a millionaire is happy. I don't know, but uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the only banter you need with Lescott is his hair. So, Oof. Uh, Yeah. Uh, let's go ahead and take our last break of the show. When we come back, we'll update you on Spain, Germany, the championship. We'll get to our top fours. We'll talk about the couple of games we haven't mentioned yet on the show, and then we will preview the full week of action midweek in the Premier League. Stay with us. This is the World Soccer Talk Podcast. Welcome back, everybody. Let's take our quick tour of Europe, and let's start in Spain, where maybe Europe's match of the weekend was taking place. Sorry, Italian football fans, but most eyes nowadays are going to be focused on Madrid, where Real Madrid hosted Atletico on Saturday. The big significance of this one, besides two of the top six or seven teams in the world playing each other, it was Zinedine Zidane's first big test as manager at the Santiago Bernabeu, and unfortunately, he failed it shortly after halftime. Antoine Griezmann scored the only goal of the match, giving Atletico what is both a trademark and perhaps predictable 1-0 victory. That posed the possibility that Atletico could close the gap on Barcelona, but in the last match of the Spanish weekend, Barcelona hosting Sevilla, falling behind to Sevilla 1-0 early, ended up with a 2-1 victory. They stay 8 points clear at the top of the Spanish table. Real Madrid is now 12 points back of Barcelona and only 2 points up on fourth place of Villarreal. Let's go over to the Bundesliga where Bayern Munich coming off of their big midweek win in Champions League. Well, sorry, they did not win in Champions League. Their almost win in Champions League, which should have been a win. Uh, they actually held their 2-0 lead this time at Wolfsburg, getting the victory there. They stay eight points up in the table over Borussia Dortmund. Dortmund got a 3-1 victory on Sunday over Hoffenheim. They are 15 points up on Hertha Berlin. 
who got a victory on Friday against Cologne. Down in the championship, there's been a change at the top of the table where Burnley, thanks to a 2-1 win at Bolton, is able to leapfrog Hull. Hull stumbling on Friday, a 0-0 draw against Sheffield Wednesday. Good result there for Wednesday, even though in sixth place they have Cardiff City nipping on their heels. Walking down the table in the championship, second place is now Hull. They're tied on points with Middlesbrough. Middlesbrough has two games in hand, though, and they're coming off a 2-0 win at Craven Cottage over Fulham. Fourth place, Burn Brighton got a victory this weekend. Can't say the same for fifth place, Derby. Their first loss since letting Paul Clement go. They fell at Wolverhampton Wanderers. Gentlemen, let's get to our top fours. Uh, Nipun, you don't get to do top fours very often. Why don't you go first? Okay. Yay. On form... Um, I'm going to go Spurs, Chelsea, Leicester, Southampton. Oh, God and, damn it. That's uh, my exact list. Okay, well, well let me change my exact list. You don't have to change mine's it. Mine's Chelsea, oh, don't change Spurs, it. Leicester, and Southampton. No, actually, mine's Southampton, Leicester, Chelsea, and Spurs. Now you're, now you're just lying to us. Go, you, think, go to your end of your for list. All of, for all of us, come the end of the season, we can say, I mean, that's a definite top four, right? Yeah, we're all going to agree on the top four at the end of the season. <laughs> Uh, yeah, definitely. Well, the I last podcast for two. I don't know. Maybe I'll try to find a reason not to. And then uh, on uh, for end of the season, uh, finally doing it. Spurs to win. Ooh. Leicester what? second. Arsenal third. City fourth. <laughs> Whoa. What, what is that to you to indicate that Leicester is going to drop away and drop any points? Say that again? What is What'd that you to say? you to indicate that Leicester is going to drop away and drop any points? I think it's just uh, it's more a historical thing rather than I, I know it's funny because I'm picking Spurs right, but um, funny yeah. It's 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 just one of those things. I don't see them pulling away enough, and I I do see them dropping points, even though they had a last minute winner in this game, which is very champion esque. But um, not this game this week. But mm. yeah, Lawrence, your top your end of your top four. I, I'm gonna match Napoon up, but basically just swap uh, Leicester. And Spurs just for kicks. Hmm. Yeah, I'm gonna. Uh, you know, I mean, look at Leicester playing this weekend. It was, it was, it was not inspirational, but you know, <laughs> again, just continually sticking to what it is they need to do, and in the end, breaking through. You know, yeah. doesn't matter what minute you score, as long as you continue to just do what you are supposed to do. And they, you know, very often they just stick to the game plan and it just keeps working. I also don't know if having two weeks off after what happened at Arsenal was necessarily a great thing for them. I think like mm-hmm. um, like a boxer that just um, dealt with their first defeat, it might have been best for them to get right back into the ring. And maybe that explains a little bit why they struggled with Norwich. But either way, like you said, it, it ended up being a little bit inspirational that they were able to still get three points out of it. Uh, or did, were they always going to have that? Was he going to give them the time off? because of that or not was he, he he might have just given them the time off anyway so if it was always in the plan keep it because it seems like sticking to everything else that he's done has worked really well so far yeah i, I think he was always going to stick to it it was just a matter of whether they were going to go into that break with a good result at arsenal which were they were, they were obviously so close to getting or they would have right. to deal with the disappointment of being handed a, a loss that maybe you know how athletes will do will they'll kind of start spinning in their mind as they've been hard done or it was um, they were unfairly handed that, that dismissal and a couple weeks to sit on that probably wasn't the best thing. Uh, regardless, it's obviously in the past now. They're back in the win column. Uh, my list is similar to Lawrence's. I have Leicester 1, Spurs 2, although I do still debate that every week. I, based on what I saw this weekend, am not putting Arsenal above City. I have City 3rd and Arsenal winning the Wenger Trophy. 
gentlemen, <laughs> gentlemen, let's talk about the couple of games that we haven't mentioned so far from the Premier League. Let's start with the first match of the weekend. West Ham 1-0 victory over Sunderland. Michael Antonio scoring in the first half. The Hammers holding on throughout the next hour of the match. This is significant because West Ham is now only four points back of a Champions League spot. They're right on Manchester United's heels, United being in fifth place. But it's also significant because, at least on paper, this might have been a match, Lawrence, where Sunderland, playing decently lately, might be able to take a point from West Ham, and it, it just didn't happen. They're now down to 11 matches to get back above that uh, relegation line. Yeah, kind things don't seem to treat Sam Allardyce like that so much anymore. I think he used up a lot of that while he was at Bolton. Um, I, I, I Basically, it was uh, down to West Ham again and the way that they uh, didn't... What I basically want to say about this game is that I don't feel that West Ham have been lucky this season, but I do feel like sometimes other teams have let them off. And mm. in this match, you'd say that they'll, they'll feel a little bit let down that Jermaine Defoe didn't put away some of his chances. Yeah. Um, Sam Allardyce was never going to come out and immediately sort of put it on him. But to, to me, it, it kind of boils down for that. You know, I've seen them play in a number of games where a lot of the players gone through very few players for West Ham, which is basically Dimitri Payet to the uh, front guys. And I'm really glad they've got M&EK in there because of the qualities that he brings to the side, not only pace and movement, but also the, the finishing that we've seen more recently. Um, and then obviously, I think most uh, West Ham fans this season will pick out Antonio as the other standout guy. So, you know, they've got some key players to go to in there. But I also think if you block their plan A, then there's very little sort of immediately immediate and effective plan B for West Ham. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, I feel like Sunderland did that fairly effectively. But at the same time, didn't manage to get players going the other way. Hmm. Uh, along, along with Defoe, uh, the the bigger biggest culprit, in my opinion, was Rodwell, who should have had a hat trick in this game and missed a couple of clear cut chances and one point. that was kind of difficult. Yeah. Hmm. You know, Sunderland though, with this, uh, gave away away shirts to every away fan in this game. Wow, okay. I didn't know. <laughs> because just for just for making the trip. Thanks for sticking around. No. Okay. You know? <laughs> uh, yeah, that's. I guess that's we, not we know this yet. must have been hard. Nipu- yeah. Nipu- uh, I want to talk about Southampton Chelsea in a minute, but one yeah. game we haven't at all mentioned was Watford and Bournemouth. A nil-nil yep. draw here. Uh, I guess any time Watford plays lately, it's apt to end in a nil-nil draw. What should we take about this match regarding... I, I, Watford's kind of stuck in mid-table at this point, but Bournemouth specifically, what should we take from their, this uh, about their chances to pull away from that relegation battle? For Bournemouth, the only bright spot was Max Gradle. I thought he he, he had a very good game, uh, linked well with the Fobi, um, should have had some great interchange in the box, actually, lots of one-twos. Uh, maybe his finishing let him down just a little bit. Wow, Max, um, Max Gradle's back. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> so he, this two-week break was awesome. Everybody's healthy now. <laughs> uh, but the big talking point, Richard, has to be Gomez. I mean, he he's someone... Herrera Gomez is someone... I think is easy to poke fun at because of some of the mistakes he's made over the season. But if you haven't had a chance to watch it, watch his save from Arter, uh, which was, I think, a 30-yard strike. It's probably one of the saves of the season. Uh, you could watch that over and over again, left-handed save, headed towards the top corner, uh, saw it late, just a terrific save. So those are two big things for me, one each for uh, each team, mm-hmm. which is about right, right, for a nil-nil team, mm-hmm. for a nil-nil game. Yeah. 
Uh, gentlemen, let's let's conclude our discussion of the weekend's results by talking about Southampton and Chelsea. And I've saved this one for last because I think there's something on both sides of this pitch that we can talk about. Let's let's talk about Chelsea and Lawrence. I want to talk to you about the Blues. There seems to have been a turnaround over these last three games. Maybe one that was ignited by going up against City's third, fourth choice team in the FA Cup. As is, that led to a good good performance against Paris Saint Germain, and uh, this is a result that. I just didn't think they were going to get. I just didn't think they were as good a team as Southampton. Maybe they aren't, but they they still got a 2-1 victory at St. Mary's against a team that just was not allowing goals. Yeah, but then I also think if you you look at the way that uh, Chelsea have been playing over the last few matches, there have still been some... Um, some truisms about the team that you know Hazard hasn't done particularly well this season. That at times Diego Costa's been found wanting uh, and frustrated himself, um, and that still at the base of that midfield, they can find them to be very ineffective going forward. And they're still not as a side. I still don't find them mobile enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, I think that that was basically found out that sometimes they're a little bit sluggish, and that was where Shane Long sort of uh, capitalised in this game because of some. Not it wasn't lazy. It was just unfortunate uh, defending from Baba across to Ivanovic and he and uh, in in pop Shane Long with a lovely little finish. I think that'll definitely change. Uh, come Conte, I think Conte wants this side to run at two hundred kilometers an hour. Is what he said uh, with his previous U of A team. Seems and fast. I'm just looking at this side and thinking. Who there is going to run 200 kilometers an hour? Um, there's people I can definitely put in that won't run 200 kilometers an hour. Uh, maybe Willian. Yes. Get back to me. Just come back to me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah William, like, William kind of seems like a coach's dream at this point between his skills and uh, his actual work ethic and his decision making. Well, yeah, but I mean, maybe that's also part of why he was included in the centre there for them was because mm-hmm. if you look at the back five slash back three that um, Southampton have been playing, it's been particularly impressive. And, you know, at the centre of that's been fun. You've got Van Dijk on uh, one side of him and, uh, sorry, I forget who played on the other side of him. Was it what wasn't what Font. Bryce played on the other side? Sorry, you've got Font, Van Dijk and who's on the other side? They, uh, they, they usually have Bertrand there and then they have... When they play three at the back, they'll have Bertrand there and they'll have Matty Target as the left. Yeah, sorry, Matty Target was there as well. Yeah, sorry. Uh, I was off target with his name. Um, well done. Well done. That was good. Obviously, Saws on the other side. Um, I, still, the back three, I think a lot of manager, managers have kind of struggled to make that work. But the more that we're seeing tactics evolve forward, the easier it becomes to play a 4-4. Not easier, but the, the kind of more sense it becomes to make, either play a 4-4-2 or an almost Three five two, hmm. um, and the, you know the two up front. I think are just as, as important as the three or four at the back. Yeah, Southampton's back three are really interesting because I think when we think of a back three, we usually think of something that is akin to what Juventus has implemented over the last two or three years. Speaking of Conte, where you have three central defenders essentially. Uh, Southampton's is almost different because they have very skilled players on the right and left, and it's a little bit closer to what you might theoretically want a three-man back line to be, where Bertrand is really a fullback, so when you shift that back line over, he can actually play a little bit out in front as uh, you go to the flank. And then uh, Van Dyke actually has the skills to make the passes in a very similar vein. Uh, in that way, it, it adds a wrinkle to when you're thinking about the matchups. Usually when you think of a back three going against a lone striker, you think that you're devoting too many men to that striker and you end up losing numbers battles elsewhere. But it's really easy for that back three to shift into what functions as a back two when you're in possession. And I think, um, I think that's what, 
part of what makes it effective. At the same time, Napoon, it does it puts you in a situation where if you're not scoring enough goals, you have to ask whether you're devoting too many resources to your back three and the wingbacks. And if there is a criticism of Southampton, it is for all of their defensive prowess, they really haven't been scoring that many goals this year. Only 35 through 27 games. And in that vein, one other goal in this game would have made a huge difference before Chelsea's comeback. Yeah, I think they shifted out of that that five formation. I mean, I think they played, they went for the back in this game with Van Dijk and Font and Bertrand and Suarez on on the right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think the problem became, as you said, they don't have enough quality going forward. The long goal was pretty much a gift from Baba Rahman. Uh, so without that, they wouldn't have even had one shot. But I think let's just agree that tactically, Southampton. At, towards the end of the season, well, the second half of the season, have set up to be defensively strong, and, and, and it's worked well for them. If yeah. you remember at the start of the season, they, they were really struggling uh, with defensive situations, hemorrhaging goals. So what what um, they've been able to do, what Coleman's been able to do, is tidy up that defense, and it's pretty much propelled them up the, up the table. So mm-hmm. there's not been much reason for him to play with that. Uh, but... I mean, I, I agree. They don't create nearly as much as they used to. Maybe that has to do with the fact that Sadio Mane hasn't been involved as much as he was yeah. towards the start of the season. Yeah, maybe. I mean, Mane now has been coming off the bench the last few games. Even like you said, when they go back to four at the back in this game, they still have Mane on the bench. Tadic didn't get any time whatsoever. Right. Graziano Pele yeah. seems to have lost his starting spot and has become a substitute over the last three or four months. At the same time, you're talking about the team that has the depth to have Charlie Austin, Shane Long, Davis uh, in the in the starting lineup. And in central midfield, even with Wanyama suspended, they can start players like Oriel Romeo and Jordi Classy and have mm-hmm. Ward Prowse to come off the bench. So a lot of options there. Maybe that's leading to the flexibility that we're talking about. Regardless, they need to find a way to start scoring some more goals. Gentlemen, we have a full slate of matches in the Premier League. Five on Tuesday, five on Wednesday. Um, I'm not really sure how to tackle this, but let's start with the biggest game of the week, at least in name, Lawrence, and that's on Wednesday, Liverpool versus Manchester City. A bit of an anticlimax here because we just saw this game today. Or did we just see this game? Or did we just see <laughs> it? Really won this game. Um, I don't know. I was the moral winner really Man City in this one? <laughs> Um, obviously, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be interesting to see how it plays out, mainly because, uh, you know, being on one all draw, uh, I think really Liverpool obviously won the points here and so did Man City in order to keep up with the pack. Um, I think it's, they'll probably end up feeling, fielding very similar sides. I'll be interested to see whether Klopp ends up experimenting a little bit with his front line mm-hmm. uh, or back line. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and, and also how the shape of that Liverpool midfield can do. I think Klopp will learn from this. And I... I think, again, Liverpool are going to try and implement some of the things that they tried but didn't uh, maybe work out in this match. Nipun, mm-hmm. I want to ask you about the matches for the teams that are in the title race beyond Manchester City. We'll take these as a group. And I'll ask you, where do you think points might be dropped or picked up? On Tuesday, Leicester is hosting West Bromwich Albion. And then on Wednesday, Tottenham has a derby at Upton Park against West Ham United. And Arsenal is hosting Swansea. Seems like Tottenham has the biggest challenge of those three. Yeah, I think out of those three, Tottenham is probably the one most likely to drop points. But they've been so darn consistent that even a tricky game, a tricky derby game, um, a London derby game, might not be proved to be very difficult for them. Uh, you and I talked about how Harry Kane might be missing. He, he came back right away uh, and was involved even today uh, in the build-up to one of the goals. Had a good game. So 
yeah, I don't see an upset in any of those three games. Mm-hmm. Lawrence, I want to ask you about the next level of the table. We talked about Liverpool a little bit, and then Nipun hinted on what's happening with West Ham. The other teams that are fighting for those Europa League spots, Manchester United hosts Watford on Wednesday, and then Southampton is going to be visiting Bournemouth on Tuesday. On paper, that looks like three points for each of those teams, but given the inconsistency of both of those sides, mm-hmm. paper probably doesn't matter that much. Yeah, although I'm I'm really interested to see uh, how this Watford side is going to play against Manchester United. I mean, you know, obviously we're talking about the, the real positives, um, but the Manchester United and the youth that Manchester United played with has played against two sides. I mean, first of all, I think Michelin capitulated to some extent against Manchester oh, United. Sure, and, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then, and then uh, I, you know, you could apply a sort of similar idea to Arsenal, um, although not exactly the same one. But, you know, and I feel like Watford are very different. Obviously, what's vital for Watford is the um, running of their front two. And I just wonder how well Manchester United is going to be able to shut down uh, that as a combination. Because when you shut that down, I think it makes them much less effective as a side. Um, if you don't allow them to hold up the ball, etc., then it really becomes a lot more difficult for them. United haven't really played well against a side like that so far in Shrewsbury, Mitchelland, etc. <laughs> so uh, let's see let's see how they cope against that, especially considering how astute Flores um, tends to be with these sorts of games. And then, Nipun, let's talk about the relegation battle, the four matches that really put that in focus. Starting on Tuesday, Aston Villa hosting an Everton team that saw their Merseyside derby postponed this weekend. Norwich is hosting an increasingly improving Chelsea team. Sunderland hosts Crystal Palace. And then on Wednesday, Stoke gets a visit from Newcastle United. Where do you think points might be swapped amongst those four fixtures? So the the I think it'll be Stoke Newcastle. I have a feeling that Newcastle's actually gonna have the beating of Stoke. You it's more doubt the God. power of Mini Ebra. Yeah, I do I do doubt the power of what did you say, Dollar Store Ebra? Yeah, which Dollar is, Store Ebra. Which, which should be probably the name of this episode of the podcast because it's really good. Dollar store hashtag dollar store ebra. <laughs> um I have this is a gut feeling that I think Newcastle might have the beating uh, of Stoke City. Uh, I think Stoke have shown that they don't tend to do well when games are kind of uh, pushed together and in this case they're playing three or four days after uh, their previous game so just for that simple reason and the fact that Newcastle has had a break uh, I think Newcastle might have to beat a Stoke well everybody when those games are played myself Kartik Krishnayar will be coming to you with a Premier League review midweek as well as a preview of the upcoming weekend's action but until then for everybody at the World Soccer Talk family of sites I'm Richard Farley for Nipun Chopra Lawrence and enjoy your football. The World Soccer Talk podcast is a production of World Soccer Talk and is executive produced by Christopher Harris and produced by Richard Farley. You can get the podcast a number of different ways, including Stitcher, iTunes, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and AudioBoom, or you can go to worldsoccertalk.com to download the show directly. To get in touch with one of the hosts, you can reach out to them on Twitter. I'm Richard Farley. Kartik is KKFLA737. Lawrence is L-O-Z-C-A-S-T, Lawscast. And Nipun is Nipun Chopra 7 Don't want to bother with Twitter? Go ahead and reach out via email. Richard at WorldSoccerTalk.com. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.